want to start off this morning by letting you know that I have a lot of ceramic mugs at home, if you can pull up that first slide. And uh, you know, they, there's a reason why, number one, is because I drink a lot of coffee. And number two is because I like uh, buying or receiving uh, mugs that kind of express many of the things that I'm into or the things that I love. So you see like, obviously, Golden State Warriors and things like, you can see like a Spider-Man mug or a Marvel superhero mug in the background. But one of the most meaningful ones for me personally was one that I received when I graduated from Western Seminary. If you don't want seminaries, it's just graduate school for pastors, right? Uh, but at my graduation, we were given a commemorative mug. It's that, that beautiful one, that light-colored one on the left, on the big screen. And, uh, and I love it because it says Western Seminary on one side, and on the back of what we're looking at, it says Nurturing Spiritual Leaders. It's a constant reminder for why did I attend seminary? Uh, what was God doing through that? Now, that mug has been with me since I graduated from seminary in 2005-ish and survived a lot of things. Like, you know, I've chipped it. I've, there's little tiny cracks in it. So it survived a lot of nicks and this minor chips over about a decade's worth of having uh, this mug. And so you can imagine my personal dismay when my oldest son, was very little, knocked it down from the counter, dropped it, and uh, the handle smashed into pieces on the ground. Now, I want to propose to you that life is kind of like that at times. That you and I, we survive some nicks and bruises, maybe get a couple of cracks. But there are moments in this life where you get knocked down hard. And it feels like that your life is being shattered into pieces. Perhaps dreams for being married or being in marriage, dreams for having children. Maybe you experience failure in this life or betrayal. Or maybe you have a long-term crippling condition or cancer. Or you've lost a loved one. I bet if we sat down, every single one of you could tell a story about crippling loss and pain. And so there are times that damage in life is so great that we cannot see God in that place. All we see are the broken pieces in front of us. And I want to tell you this morning, the book of Ruth is a love letter written by God for you. And so if you have a Bible, you want to turn in it to the book of Ruth, chapter 1. If you don't have one, there's Bibles underneath every other chair uh, under. Right, right in front of you. We are in this series called Redeemed. And that's a very churchy word. What does it actually mean? In the ancient Near East, the idea of being redeemed is if you were in debt or in captivity or in obligation to someone else and you couldn't afford to pay that debt, then your closest kin, your closest family member could come and deliver you from enslavement of obligation by paying a ransom price to set you free, to buy back your life. And the big story of the Bible is that all of us were enslaved to suffering and sin and death, and we cannot pay the price. But there is a God in heaven who declares to us that I am your closest kin. I will redeem you. I will pay the price. And he does so through Jesus. And we saw, for those of you who've been with us, kind of an Easter egg back in the book of Nehemiah that we went through most of this year, that God rescues us and restores us and redeems on a grand scale of nations and history. But what about for regular, everyday people and pain? 
As we enter the book of Ruth, I want you to pay attention to how these very normal people respond to personal suffering and how God intersects with their story. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malin and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. Now these two took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. And then both Malan and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Let's stop right there for a minute. So, give you some context. Here in verse 1, it says, we're in the time of the book of Judges. Okay, this is the time when there was no kings. And I want to give you a summary of the book of Judges. This is, Ruth is kind of like right in the middle of that time. In the book of Judges, which is right before the book of Ruth, the closing line of Judges in chapter 21, verse 25 says, In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, the time of the Judges is summed up in that everyone, there was no king in Israel, everyone was their own king indulging themselves and their sin, and then they experience suffering apart from God because that's what happens when you turn away from God. And we see in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, that that suffering that they experienced by life apart from God included experiencing a great famine that decimated the nation of Israel. None of the surrounding nations were going to see, just Israel. So that even Bethlehem, for those of you who know a little bit of Hebrew, the word Bethlehem, the name of the town Bethlehem, literally means house of bread. It was the breadbasket of Israel. So that the house of bread was literally without bread and wheat for the people to eat. And so into this, in verse 2, we meet this woman. Her name is Naomi. Her name means sweet, pleasant, or sweetheart. And uh, she is married to a man named Elimelech, whose name, and I want you to pay attention to this, is in a season when there was no king in Israel, his name means God is my king, Eli Malek. God is my king. And it's ironic because the decisions that he makes declares the exact opposite of his name. Like many men, he sees only this practical threat to his family, the economic opportunities. Without consulting God, he decides to leave the promised land and move them to the neighboring nation of Moab. You guys remember the nation of Moab? Maybe, maybe not. We talked about it a little bit during Nehemiah. Here's the problem. In Numbers chapters 21 through 25, this is the nation that is filled with sexual immorality and idolatry, and they hate God's people. They went to war against them. And they tried to lure God's people away from God through those two things, sexual immorality and idolatry. And so here's this man. He sees a problem. There's famine in the land and sees the economic opportunities, and he moves his family to a place where he can get bread. But Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3 says what? Man does not live by bread alone, but from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So he moves his family to a place where they can get bread, but there's no church for his family to worship with. There's no friends, godly friends, for Naomi to pray with or fellowship with. There's no godly influence for his kids to grow up with. There's no godly women 
for his sons to marry. They're in a culture that completely worships false gods and demons. And so we see what this man, when the rubber met the road, when he can't make ends meet, God is not really king in his life, despite his name. And in devastation and his desperation, he makes a decision apart from God based on practical needs without considering the spiritual implications. So what's the outcome of his decisions? Verse 3 and 4, he dies. We don't know how, but we do know it's not part of his plan, despite his plan for coming here. But there's a backup contingency. There's still two sons he has, <coughs> excuse me, who can take care of his wife, Naomi, when she's old and gray. And that's really important in ancient Near East culture. We'll talk about why in a minute. But at least, even though her husband has died, maybe her life can still turn around because at least they found food in Moab. Maybe his sons can now, they now find wives that don't love or serve or worship God thanks to dad and the choices that he made for his family. But at least now that his sons are getting married, their sons are getting married, they can provide at least some heirs to continue their family someday. Verse 5, both sons die. There's no children in their family, even though they were married about 10 years. And so we don't just see the death of a husband and two sons. We are seeing the death of this woman Naomi's dreams, her hopes for the future. Back then, men were the primary breadwinners in ancient Near East culture, Men had all the legal rights. They held the accounts and the properties and the businesses were all under the man's family name. And so if a husband dies and a woman is too old to remarry and his son's not old enough to work or, he has, or she has no son and no income, who ends up the most powerless and the poorest in the, their society? Widows and the fatherless. That's why God talks a lot about in the Bible taking care of them because they are the most vulnerable distressed and disadvantaged in ancient Near East society. Now, why did Elimelech move to Moab to escape death and to save his family? What happens when he gets there? He dies, and so do his sons. It is a reminder to all of us that life and death are in God's hands, not ours, no matter what decisions we try to make and plan for apart from him. And so we see here the tragic example of a man who didn't count the spiritual cost, who mortgaged his future, who destroyed his life and his family. So what's the lesson we learned from this? That in your plans and in your pain, resist making circumstances king in place of God. It's when we rationalize that, God, I know this doesn't honor you, but I'm hurting. I know that I shouldn't do this, but I'm, in, I'm facing financial ruin. I know I shouldn't drop out of church, but I'm devastated. I know I shouldn't be dating or marrying somebody who's not a Christian yet, but I'm so lonely. I know I shouldn't try to fix this situation without you, but I'm in great pain, and then I wonder why you're not blessing me when my plans fall through. How do you tell if God is really king in your life? Do you tend to 
rationalize and compromise the spiritual, God's values, your integrity, your faith? Do you rationalize and compromise the spiritual to prioritize the practical in order to just alleviate your pain? Now, I want you to hear me clearly. When we face trials, it doesn't mean don't make any, any plan. Like, oh, I'm not being spiritual enough, so I don't want to make any practical plans. Just trust God. The Bible says that's not faith, that's folly. But it does mean, do I seek God, his will, and his ways to guide my plans? And then once God gives me some ideas of which direction to go, do I continue to trust and honor and obey him as we enact those plans? In other words, do I look at my pain and the situation that I am, I'm in, and do I come to God as first priority rather than last resort? Now, what I love about this story, this is a pretty depressing story, but as we peel back the painful circumstances, we start to get a glimpse of the fingerprints of God. Look at verse 6. Then she, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law, to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So what's happening here is God is mentioned for the very first time in this book. In this entire book, he's actually only mentioned 21 times throughout this entire book uh, in the Bible. And of those 21 times, only twice by the author. At the beginning of the book and at the end. In chapter 1, verse 6 here, that God gives food. And then at the end, in chapter 4, verse 13, that God gives a baby. And so these are kind of bookends revealing that God's character is good. He's a good God who redeems the suffering of Naomi's family, who their suffering and tragedies, tragedies were about a loss of food and a loss of family. And we see the bookends that when God is mentioned, that he heals those two, redeems those two things. Verse 6, while she was working in the field, trying to gather enough food for herself and her daughters-in-law, the work of God travels through the grapevine to her, literally in the field, that God has shown up in Israel, that he's giving grace to his people to reverse, to restore, to redeem their plight. And so here we find the overarching theme of the book of Ruth, that of the providence of God. What does that mean? It means that like the song we sang earlier, God is constantly at work throughout history, throughout lives, through two hands. And we'll see this throughout the Bible. The first one is the visible hand of the miraculous. We see this all the time in the Bible, that God does these miraculous things. For example, that he spoke to Moses through a burning bush, that he delivered his people from sin, slavery, suffering, and death in Egypt by parting the Red Sea, that he provides literal bread from heaven, that his son is born of a virgin, and then he, he, this is the same son who walks on water and raises the dead. So God's hand of the miraculous is obvious. Now, God not only works that way, but his other hand is that also God is also at work most of the time through his invisible hand of providence. Many people come and say, Pastor Josh, I wish that I could see God at work. I want to tell you that you do all the time for those with eyes to see through faith. That God is not just working for kings and nations and 
important, influential people, but that the providence of God means that he works through the everyday details of normal people's lives, like Naomi, like Elimelech, like Ruth, like us. And so the providence of God is about both his sovereignty and his goodness. Let me explain what that means. Sovereignty means that God knows everything. He has authority over everything. He's ruling and reigning over all of creation, all of history, all of eternity, all of the subtleties of your life and mine. He's in charge. He's in control. Now, there's not just his sovereignty, but he also has to be good in his providence. That means that God is just. He's compassionate. He is caring. He is kind that he does things for your own good, not to to harm you, but for your benefit. And then people will come to me and say, well, Pastor Josh, why is there so much evil in the world then? If God is sovereign, doesn't that mean all the evil stuff that happens in this life is part of his will? No, the answer is no, because there are many things in this world that are not his will. We call them sin. And so in the Bible, what happens is God grieves over the sin and suffering. He weeps over it. He gets angry over sin and suffering of people. What does that tell us? That not everything is currently in obedience to God. That there's rebellion, sin, evil, and its effects in this world. But what providence means is that, yes, there are some things that are currently not going against the will of God, but Providence is that God is working everything out in the end for his redemptive good. Give you an example. Genesis chapter 37, there's a man named Joseph. Lovely guy, worships the Lord, but his own brothers beat him, betray him, abuse him, and then they sell him into slavery. And then years later, the tables are turned, and he's the one in power over his brothers. He has a chance for revenge. And in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, He says, what you, his brothers, intended for evil, God used for good in the saving of many lives. And so this is a picture for us of the providence of God that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that God works all things together for the good of those who love God. Now, what that doesn't mean is that all circumstances are good, but that God is. And so that he can take terrible situations, and in the end, he is weaving things that happen so that they turn out to be something good, beneficial for people's lives. And so that means, for the follower of Jesus, there's no wasted tears. There's no wasted pain for those who follow Jesus, that God uses it. He has purpose in it. And you need to understand that when something happens to you that's painful or suffering, You need to know that not every affliction comes from the hand of God. When people hurt you, it's because they did that. When there's brokenness, when people suffer and die and there's disease, that's because sin has its effects on creation so that we're deteriorating and things are painful and things are broken, but God is going to redeem it. So it's not that all the suffering we experience in God's sovereignty, it's not that it, it comes from the hand of God, but it must pass through the hands of God. That's what his sovereignty and his providence mean, for him to use it for his glory and for our good. So in this passage, we see right here in these little two verses, the sovereignty and the goodness of God show up through the invisible hand of providence because what was once famine and death has turned to blessing. 
There's food in the field. There's hope in the heart because God is in our midst. And the author says that that's not luck. That's not chance. That's not circumstance. But that's God. God is the one who has brought relief. And so how does Naomi respond to that? Verse 7, she resolves in her heart to go back to God, his people, and his blessing because redemption isn't found in the disobedience of Moab, but in returning to God in faith. And so the big idea of this passage this morning, as well as the whole book of Ruth, is that God's providence works with our faithfulness to bring about his redemptive plan in the midst of our pain, in the midst of life's pain. That Naomi is tracing the outline of the invisible hand of God at work in, his, in her life that's shaping the ordinary circumstances of her difficulties and decisions. And then, as she starts to sense that, then she responds in faith, trusting the goodness and the providence of God, and then acting on it by returning to Judah with her daughters-in-law. But now, these two young ladies, they also face a choice. How are they going to respond? to their pain and loss. Verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should uh, say, I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, Naomi said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything, but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Epic, epic statement. So what's happening here? Verses 8 and 9, Naomi turns to her two daughters-in-law and says, look, I got nothing left. You need to go back home to your parents. Uh, Then she prays a blessing over them. I don't know if you caught that. This is a little prayer that she issues. May God show you, it says in your uh, translation, deal kindly with you. But the word there is, may God show you his chesed in Hebrew. You know that word? It means in some translations, loving kindness. May God show you his love and kindness. It also is better translated as his loyal love. And so it's a picture of God's faithfulness and favor given to someone. Just as you've shown me, Naomi, and may God show you his favor and his loyal love by giving you new husbands, a new family. 
And so what we see happening here is Naomi is kissing them goodbye along with her last of her hopes and her dreams for a family and a future. She's kissing it all goodbye. And in verses 10 through 13, Orpah and Ruth, they love their mother-in-law. They've been with her for 10 years. They've gone through tragedy together. And she says, they want to go with her. But Naomi, she lays down a harsh truth for them. Look, I am too old to remarry. And even if I could, I'm too old to get pregnant. And even if I did and I bore two sons, are you going to wait another, another 20 years to marry uh, my infant sons? No, that's ridiculous. I can't give you a family or a future. Go home. And though Naomi's name means sweet, she says, my life is exceedingly bitter. Because right now, she can only see the suffering. She cannot see any Savior. Verse 14 and 15, Orpah makes the sensible choice. Sensible apart from the goodness and providence of a living God. And so she returns to her Moabite family and her Moabite idolatry, a godless life. And I want to submit to you, how often do you and I do the same? Before you condemn her, how often do you you and I do the same when we get knocked down that we turn away and walk away from God and his people and we lick our wounds by going back to old habits, broken patterns, dysfunctional relationships because we find comfort in the familiar apart from God. But in verses 16 and 17, Ruth makes this incredibly legendary statement of hesed, of her loyal love and faithfulness. Naomi, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you stay, I will stay. Wherever you die, I will die. I am making this vow to be your people, to be my people, and your God and his worship to be my God and my worship. And now that I put my faith, my trust, my life in God to follow you and to follow him, may he judge me if I break this covenant to be a family of faith together with you for the rest of my life. That's epic, isn't it? And so I want to ask you, at the crossroad of pain, are you more like Orpah? Where you return to what you know and who you were before Jesus because you find comfort in the familiar instead of in Christ? Or are you going to be like Ruth, who chose the courage of faithfulness over the comfort of familiarity? You see, when there is suffering that brings us to a fork in the road of faith, we can either be comfortable or faithful, but you cannot be both. And I want you to understand this big decision that Ruth makes. This is not something you take lightly. We can understand why Orpah wants to stay with her people, with her culture, with her familiarity. In Judah, Moabites are not liked. They're not welcome. She's going to a place where she will have no husband, no friends, no job, no food. But she has heard the stories about the one true God from her only Christian friend, her mother-in-law. And though she's only been a believer for about maybe five minutes now, by faith, she's going to leave her comfort zone of yesterday because she believes in the promise of a better tomorrow with God. Now, what I want you to also see is that these two women, as they choose to return back to God and trust in him, being faithful doesn't mean that you don't feel upset about painful things. It doesn't mean that you're always going to be positive and peaceful in the midst of your pain. 
Let's wrap up this passage, verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the, woman, and the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? And then wraps up, so Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So in verse 19, the little town of Bethlehem is abuzz at their arrival. Everybody has taken notice at their coming. And then some old friends even recognized Naomi. Girl, is that you? I haven't seen you since our college days. And how does she respond to that? Verse 20 to 21, don't call me Naomi. Naomi means sweet, pleasant, sweetheart. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because God has dealt bitterly with me. You see, I left here full of hope for a bright future, and the Lord has brought me back empty. I wonder if you've ever been in that place where it feels like all the goodness in your life has been drained out, and there's nothing left except bitterness about your life and even about God. Now, some commentators interpret this passage as Naomi's, Naomi's lack of faith, and I'm going to disagree with that, here's, but here's why. I can understand why, because things like Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 tells us you're not supposed to get bitter, right? You don't want to harbor bitterness in your heart. But let me point out a few things that happen in this passage. Number one, Naomi never stops believing in God. She just doesn't like him very much at this moment. And in her nightmare of her life, she's so focused on his sovereignty that she's forgotten his goodness. When the providence of God is both of those things, that God is in charge, in control, but he's also good. He cares about us, and he's going to work everything out in the end for our good. So that's the first observation. She's never stopped believing in God. Secondly, if she were saying these things but running away from God and grumbling, grumbling alone against him, then I would think she's without faith. But instead of running away from God, she's running towards God's people. You see that? She comes to these women who are all followers of God, worshipers of God. These women are kind of like her small group, like her growth group. And she runs towards them and she gets honest. I know it's not the right thing to say, but I'm furious with God. I've run out of joy. I've run out of tears. I don't know if God is good, at least to me. And so what she does is she comes before these women, these followers of God, and she gets honest. She honestly shares her pain. She needs help. She's inviting others to pray and to support and encourage her. And so here is the point of this part of the passage, that when we cannot yet see uh, the or we have not yet experienced the providence of God. We can't see it. We can't see him moving us from devastation to redemption. That you and I, we can bring our bitterness honestly into the blessing of God's community. 
that we can and we need to do that. Now, how do we know that's the point? Like, that it's not just that bitterness, like, oh, we're not supposed to be like Ruth, uh, Naomi, don't be bitter. Throughout the book of Ruth, you read this story. If you read it in context, right, we always teach you, don't take verses out of context. Read the whole story. If you read Ruth's story, throughout this book, God never condemns her for her bitterness. Never. Never says, I bless you, but you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have talked like that. You shouldn't have thought like that. In this book, we never hear about Elimelech or Orpah again because they actually turned away from God. But both Ruth and Naomi, they cling on to God, and together they will experience the providence of God to redeem their nightmare. And we know that because we catch a glimpse of it in this last verse, verse 22. Naomi returns, it says, but does she really come back empty-handed like she claims? Like, I've returned empty? No, it says Naomi returned and Ruth with her. That God gave her the hesed, the loyal love of a daughter-in-law. Family is already starting to happen. Secondly, it says that in that verse that they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. What is that? That's hope. That's hope. That the famine is over. That God's providence of hesed, of blessing has come. And not just at some random time, just as Naomi and Ruth return, this blessing happens, filling the empty house of bread with hope. It's not a coincidence that it happens right when they come. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, it doesn't matter what your theology is or how much you love God, at some point you're going to be frustrated with God like Naomi. Because he's, he's not always going to do what you want or what you ask in the midst of your pain. But unlike Naomi, sometimes we lie to ourselves and other people. When we're asked how we're doing, you walked in this morning, some of you are in great suffering. How are you doing? Fine. You're a liar. <laughs> and so what we do is we keep our pain We shove it, this acid down, and we bottle it up till we blow up, until we give up on God. And I want to challenge you to be like Naomi, that when you come to church, when you join a growth group, that you get honest about your pain and even your anger with God, and let the family of Christ surround you and support you, counsel you and correct you, pray for you and love you. And if you are not in the midst of suffering, I pray that you will be the safe kind of person that allows someone to come and be honest about their pain, even when they're angry with God? Would you create a safe place where someone can be accepted and protected in the midst of their pain? Because there's a God in heaven who is sovereign enough and caring enough to hold both Naomi's faithfulness and her bitterness in his hands. Now, there are times in your life when you feel your life's going to feel like shattered pottery, like my seminary mug. And if you can't hold, if it can't be held together, if it's irreparable, then all we can do with something like that is to throw out the broken shards. That's what it feels like sometimes with life. But in Japan, they have a different philosophy. It's called kintsukuroi. It means to repair with gold. That in the ancient Near East, once something's broken, can't hold water, you throw it out. But in Japan, they have this thing called the art of restoring broken prop, uh, pottery 
through a costly process where you use gold, material that far exceeds the original value of the vessel. And that instead of trying to hide the damage, what the gold does, it actually illuminates the fractures. It highlights the story and the beauty of its repair, of its redemption. And I want to tell you that in Christ, you can be kintsukuroi, that you're broken by suffering and sin, and at times beyond repair. But Jesus doesn't throw you away. He heals, he gathers up all the broken shards and then heals those broken pieces at great personal cost, far greater than any gold, by shedding his own blood on a cross so that he can remake you, redeem you, restore you, even better than you were before. And then you will know, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, as Jesus whispers into your, 2 Corinthians, excuse me, my grace is sufficient for you that my power is made perfect in your weakness because you will reflect his beauty in your brokenness. And I want to challenge you, if you want to experience his purposes and his providence in the pains of life, you're going to need to make some decisions about God in yourself today. In your devastation, do you know that God gives you hesed, his loyal love for you? That he gave up his own son to redeem our sin, and so we can trust his providence to redeem our pain. That he is working out everything in the end for our good, for his glory. In our devastation, who are you in this story? Do you tend to practically plan apart from God like Elimelech? Do you tend to turn back to compromise and comfort like Orpah? Do you need to get honest about your bitterness, like Naomi? Or is it perhaps time to take a courageous step of faithfulness like Ruth? Who are you in this story this morning? May you trust in God's providence. May you respond in faithfulness. And may you experience his loyal love as your great redeemer today. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to continue worshiping with music and time of communion. If you are a baptized follower of Jesus, we want to invite you to come up and take one of the communion cups, to take the bread and wine, and we're going to hold it and take it together. If you are not a baptized believer, we ask that you refrain from taking one, just enjoy the worship. But I want to pray for us now. God, our Father, we thank you and praise you because you are a great redeemer. Every single one of us is going to know pain in our life, in our lifetime, if we are not there already. Pain that scars us, pain that shapes us, pain that even breaks us. May we come before the throne of grace humbly, instead of trying to fix everything ourselves, instead of trying to give up on life, instead of turning to so many poor substitutes to satisfy us or to heal us. May we trust there's a good God in heaven. And so we continue to worship you. And as we reflect during this moment, during this next song, about who are we in this story? Are we Elimelech? Are we Orpah? Are we Naomi? Are we Ruth? May we come before you in honesty and bow before you in dependency and experience the greatness of a God who redeems us and loves us.